Please be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Zechariah 3. It's also printed in your bulletin. My name is Rob Heron. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. And we are continuing this morning with our series on the book of Zechariah. This is a book that gives hope to God's people that's greater than what they can see. And in spite of appearances, God is the glory in their midst. In spite of what they see and experience in this broken world, God is reigning and ruling and he is at work to bring his righteous kingdom to this world through his people. So if you would read with me Zechariah chapter 3. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, Then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. And I pray that it would set us free. And I pray that you would give us uh, clarity to see uh, the truth of your word and the hope of righteousness given to us and that your spirit would apply it to us and transform us with it. In your name, amen. You just want to be right. That's what my friend said to me. The year was 2009 and I was on spring break with my friends on vacation and we were debating which movie to watch. If you ask me today if I enjoy arguing, I would say not as much. And what I would mean is not as much as I used to. If you asked me about 10 years ago, when I was in college, if I enjoyed arguing, if I were at least a little bit honest, I would say a little bit. If I were really honest, I would say a lot. Because I'm one of those people that gets better at arguing the longer the argument goes on. I tend to pick up steam as I go. So here we are, 2009, we're on spring break. It's a rainy night. And so we're staying in, and we're about to watch a movie, and having a furious debate about what we're going to watch. One of my friends, Taylor, speaks up, and he says, let's watch Waterworld. If 
you don't know the film Waterworld, this is a film, 1995 blockbuster starring Kevin Costner about a future in which the world is submerged in water, a water world, if you will. And in this movie, Kevin Costner has to save the day by finding dry land. Taylor says, let's watch this movie. And to him, I very gently reply, Waterworld is the worst movie ever made. I'm leaving a lot of gray area for debate. And my close friend, my closest friend in the group, looks at me and he says, you can't say that. Taylor likes this movie. How do you know that it's bad? And to him, I say, I don't know that it's bad. I know that it's the worst. It's the baddest. And so we entered into the longest argument I have ever had in my entire life, going back and forth debating the merits of Waterworld with Kevin Costner. And we debated so furiously and for so long that the two of us skipped the movie altogether. And we even argued all the way up to the stairs where we were sleeping and were brushing our teeth and simultaneously yelling at each other, Waterworld's okay, and me saying, Waterworld's the worst. Until finally, he looks at me and he says, Rob, you just want to be right. And he was right. I just wanted to be right. Not just in that argument, I wanted to be in the right with him. I wanted him to be wrong. Here's why this is ridiculous. One, I had not seen Waterworld. <laughs> I still haven't seen it. I had to Google what it is. <laughs> I, I think I just vaguely knew about it and enjoyed arguing so much. And said it's the worst movie ever made. But more than that, when my friend said that to me, he said, Rob, you just want to be right my pride wilted into shame. Because I wanted to be in the right with him, but I saw in that moment how clearly wrong I was, how full of pride and self-righteousness I was, and it just turned into shame in a moment. The deep longing of our heart, the unshakable longing of our heart, is to be in the right to be clear of wrong in our own eyes and in the eyes of others. We flee accusation because of this. We enter, like me, into seemingly small arguments to justify ourselves. This is why we say, I'm not a bad driver. They are. You know, or I'm a nice person compared to them. We want to be in the right And this is what the Bible tells us is a reflection of a deeper longing for what it calls righteousness. To be righteous before God. Cleared of wrong and in the right. But the reality is that it's much more obvious that we want to be in the right in our eyes and the eyes of other people. What does it even mean to be righteous before God? And so we focus on the former. Being right in our eyes and the eyes of other people. What happens is that we end up continually fluctuating between pride and shame. Pride meaning, I see myself in the right above others, condescendingly, self-righteously. Or we fluctuate to, I see myself below others in my dignity, shame. And we move in and out of these, and neither one of them has hope for you or for the world. If you're filled with pride, you engage the world condescendingly, not helpfully. If you're filled with shame, you don't engage engage the world. You move away from it. 
And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that righteousness before God is intimately connected to hope for you and hope for this world. And that's what Zechariah 3 shows us. And it's this promise that God's gift of righteousness is the hope for you and for the world. God's gift of righteousness is your hope and the hope for this world. And I want to unfold this by looking at three things concerning righteousness this morning. The need for righteousness, the nature of righteousness, and the goal of righteousness. The need, the nature, and the goal. So first, the need for righteousness. Moving into this text, Zechariah 3, it's helpful for me to give you a working definition of righteousness. Righteousness is first and foremost who God is and what he does. I'll give the definition here. To put it clear, hopefully, and succinctly, righteousness is God's undying commitment to be himself and glorify himself. And God does righteousness by being faithful to his promises and to his people. God is righteous and he does righteousness. That means is that God will be faithful to his people because he says he will. And because God is true, he cannot lie. Because God is righteous, he is who he is and he does what he says. And this gives us a lens into seeing what's going on in Zechariah 3, where God is acting as a righteous judge, where he must judge righteously. You look at verse 1 in the passage before you. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. This is a vision that Zechariah is given by the Lord where he is taken into a heavenly courtroom where the Lord's angel, the angel of the Lord, is acting as his representative as a righteous judge. There are angels in witness to this trial Joshua, the high priest of God's people, is standing trial, and Satan, the accuser, is standing by to accuse Joshua. It's a heavenly courtroom, a vision of God judging the world and his people righteously. And what you see here is that Joshua is on trial, and the high drama of this is not only is Joshua on trial, but because he is the high priest, he represents all of God's people. Meaning if he is found guilty of unrighteousness in God's presence before the Lord, then all of God's people are found guilty of unrighteousness. And that makes it more horrifying when we see in verse 3 where it says that Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. The high priestly garments that Joshua was wearing were meant to symbolize the righteousness required to be before a righteous God. And the righteousness that God himself emanated and was to be characteristic of his people, to be faithful before him, to have beauty in his presence as he has beauty and glory. And here Joshua is and says his garments were filthy. And that doesn't mean, you know, if I eat a sandwich and spill a little bit of ketchup on my shirt, that's a stain. What this language is saying is these priestly garments are dipped in muck and filth. They are covered in filth. This is symbolic of unrighteousness before the Lord. That's blatant. 
Joshua's need is desperate. And what Satan is doing is bringing these accusations of essentially saying, look, this is your representative of God's people. Look at him. He is filthy. He is defiled. You need to kick him out. The Lord needs to either kick him out or deal with his unrighteousness in some way. And Satan's accusations are gearing Joshua to say, look, just look. Look how obvious your unrighteousness is. Imagine that you went out and exercised. And if you're like me, you're thinking, that doesn't sound like me. That's why I said imagine that you went out and exercised. And you went and you played soccer, you went for a run. And imagine you ran into a, a fence with a jagged edge. And you cut yourself. And you cut the side of your stomach all the way to your back. And right here where the cut starts, it's shallow. And as it moves around your back, it gets deeper and deeper until it's very dangerous. For this cut to become dangerous, all you need to do is you don't have to just do nothing. If you only treated what you saw at the beginning of the cut and didn't deal with the back of your cut, you'd be in dire danger. And you say, I have no need. I've dealt with the cut. You're in danger as long as you don't deal with the other half of it. But imagine you see all of it. You see the whole cut and you do nothing. You're in just as much danger. Imagine with a mirror, you're able to see the deepest part of the cut. What you say is, this is just who I am. This is me. The need is too great, but this is just who I am now. You'd be in just as much danger, though your prognosis is more accurate. What you've forgotten is that you weren't meant to have this cut in the first place. You weren't meant to have a gaping wound in your side. So go to the hospital. You see, as was the case with Joshua, Satan's method of accusation worked with half-truths, getting you to focus your attention on half of the truth. When we talk about need for righteousness, we think, okay, I just need to admit I need righteousness. Okay, I'm down with that. But all Satan has to do is to get you to say, I have seen my need and I've seen all of it. I've confessed all of it. I've dealt with it. To be prideful and to ignore your need, you don't have to say, I have no need. You just have to be proud of your confession, proud of your humility. You don't have to say, I'm more righteous than other people outright. All you need to do is to be relieved when you see other people fail or enraged when you're confronted with their sin. That's all it takes for you to be prideful and to miss your deepest need. In the same way, what Satan is aiming to do is to get your eyes to focus on the extent of your need and to end there. To see that as the end of the story. This is just who I am and there's no getting around it. Because the other half of the story is that you weren't created for this need, for this unrighteous brokenness. You weren't made for this. What I want you to see is that need is hopeful. Need points us to God doing something. The need for him to act and to redeem and restore us. Which takes us to the second thing, which is the nature of righteousness. So the need for righteousness is desperate. More than what we can see and deeper than we can imagine. But how does the Lord respond to Satan's accusations and the evidence backing them? 
You look in verse 2, it's very clear. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? The Lord turns the accuser's accusations against himself. Dismantles them before he even gets going. And he says, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, or his people, rebuke you. God says, I have chosen my people. It's my right to judge them, not yours. Your accusations hold no weight. They hold no water. Then he says, is not this a brand plucked from the fire, saying, is this not a stick? It's like he's been plucked from a destroying flame. The Joshua, with God's people, have been rescued from exile. And the angel of the Lord is saying, would the Lord rescue in order to condemn? No, by no means. The Lord will not condemn his people because he is righteous. He has promised to vindicate them, to rescue them, and so he will do it. How does he do it? This means he must deal with it. And first, you look in verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And this is symbolic of unrighteousness, not piece by piece, but in one moment, one time for all, being stripped away from Joshua. Saying, forgiveness is here. Forgiveness is happening now. This is an amazing picture of God's forgiveness. But imagine if the vision just stopped here. Here, Joshua is standing before a heavenly tribunal for angels, and he's basically made naked. I mentioned this in Sunday school, and Taylor Oakley said, it sounds like a bad dream if it just ended there. But this is a good vision, and so it does not end here. And as wonderful as forgiveness is, it gets better. We see in verse 4, And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Not only is the unrighteousness removed, but pure, spotless garments are given to Joshua. That he is not only forgiven, but he is declared righteous. That he is given as a provision righteousness. And Zechariah pipes in because he can't apparently contain his excitement in verse 5. And he says, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the turban was important for the priest. It was a kingly representation of his status before the Lord. But it also showed the dignity that belonged to God's people being in his presence. Because on the turban was inscribed these words, holy to the Lord. Or in other words, righteous and precious in my sight. The Lord is saying, clothing Joshua and saying, this is how I see you. I see you as righteous. I see you as precious in my eyes. Uh, This weekend was the annual Chosen for Life conference. And those of you who don't know, Chosen for Life is a nonprofit organization that was begun by Brian and Lisa Miller to equip churches to care for widows and orphans in our region. And one of the programs that Chosen for Life does is called My Name Matters. What My Name Matters does is it goes to homes where foster children are coming into the house from their previous home and life, and it gives them a care package. 
And the care package is filled with a towel monogrammed, so with their initials written on it, their name, and a pillowcase with their name written on it, and a bag with their name written on it. And these children, they're coming from everything they've known. And they're brought to a place, a new home, because where they were before is deemed dangerous. And what these gifts are meant to do is to show them you are not just your brokenness. You're not just what you came from. You are not just the pain and and the difficulty of what you're coming from. What it says when that child goes to bed that night and lays their head down on a pillow inscribed with their name is, this is who you are. You are one who is loved. You are not one who is abandoned. That is not your identity. And it communicates that to them in such a rich way, and even a simple way. You know, of course, this child and these children who received these packages did nothing to earn them. They did nothing to work for them, but it's a joy to give it to them. And as much as they didn't earn them, they didn't earn these gifts, they are really theirs. They're freely theirs. In the same way, righteousness is by nature a gift. Righteousness is by nature something that you cannot earn. Righteousness is alien to you in your fallenness, meaning that it's not self-generated. We say that righteousness is imputed to you, and this righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. That God imputes it, meaning he credits it to you. That received by faith, you are given like a new garment, like this new pillow, these new things. What it says is this is who you are. You are given Christ's own righteousness, his standing before the Father, his own record of obedience, his own beauty. And you are clothed with this. And of course, it is by nature a gift which means that this works against all kinds of pride and self-righteousness. Anywhere where you are looking for value and love in an ultimate way outside of the righteousness credited to you in Christ, you are rejecting God's gift of righteousness. That When you obsess over your body and your health to gain ultimate value, you are rejecting God's gift of righteousness. When you look for value and love in an ultimate way from another relationship, you are rejecting God's gift of righteousness. Because you did not create it on your own. And at the same time, it is really yours. This attacks shame. Because as much as you did not self-generate it, God is saying, this is truly who you are. This is more true than your failures. This is more true than your sin and your brokenness. It's very easy to think that something cannot be true unless I've earned it or unless I feel it. But what God is giving here is better than what you earn. And it's deeper than what you experience. And he promises that as you respond to it, you will experience it and know it more and more. But it tacks shame because it says that who you are It's who you are in Christ. It's who you are as one seen through the beauty of Christ given to you. That is the nature of righteousness. No, you didn't earn it, but it's yours. And so live in it. 
Which takes us to our third point, the goal of righteousness. So the need is desperate. The nature is that it is a gift. Third, what is the goal of righteousness? Or put it another way, what am I supposed to do with this? What is this for? I'm going to show you two things here. First, the goal is a person. The goal of righteousness is a person. You read in verse 6. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Here, the Lord is retasking Joshua to act as the high priest. And he says, If you will act faithfully as my priest, and if you will keep my commands and do what I have asked you, then not only will you have access in this earthly court, this earthly temple, but you will have access in the heavenly temple, in the heavenly courtroom with me. Here's the question. Is this rejecting and denying what I just said? That righteousness is a gift. Is God saying here, okay, here it is, but now you've got to earn it? No. And the first reason would be that this is following the pattern that is given throughout Scripture. Indicative first and then imperative. What is true comes before what you are called to do. So that's the first thing. But secondly, what we see here is that this passage is not ultimately about Joshua. In the end, it is not about Joshua. We see in verse 8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. They are pointing beyond themselves to one who is to come, a greater high priest. And it goes on in verse 8. Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. The servant. This is a language that comes from Isaiah 52 and 53. There it is, the suffering servant. And it's this figure that God promises of one who will come and remove his people's unrighteousness. It will bring them into his presence. And the branch, this comes from Isaiah 11, where it talks about the stump that brought forth a shoot of Jesse, meaning there was this destruction for God's people in the exile. And from that destruction that came about as a result of unrighteousness, God will bring forth a branch. Hope. God will bring forth hope of righteousness. So God is saying, Joshua, you and all the other priests, they are pointing. Your task and your role is pointing forward to one who is to come, who will remove unrighteousness, and who will himself be the hope of righteousness. He is everything. This one who is to come is the entire goal of righteousness. Mike Berbiglia is a stand-up comedian. Uh, He's joking about uh, talking with his wife and arguing with her. And at one point in the argument, he, like me, loves to be right. And she said to him, Mike, you just want to be right. You just want to be right. And what he said to her was, I don't need to be right. I just am. And this is a little bit of an, of an in-joke that all spouses and ever, anyone who's in a relationship with anyone knows that there is this tension between being right and being one. Do you want to be right? Or do you want to be one? 
You want to be connected, or you just want to be right all the time. With Jesus, who is the one who is promised here, he is the servant, he is the branch, in a sense, you don't have to choose. Because he is your righteousness, and what he is inviting you towards is him. So in a sense, we can say that the goal of righteousness is less for you to be righteous than for you to be with Jesus. Less of you saying, I have this righteousness, and more of you saying, I have Jesus. And this is so important, and it works against pride and shame because we don't have to say, oh, I just need to believe in Jesus' righteousness more. That's what I need to do, which would lead to pride. And you don't need to say, oh, I don't, I'm just not believing in Jesus' righteousness enough, as true as that may be. The truer goal is for you to be with Jesus, for your eyes to move towards him. The goal here is not ultimately about you, but Jesus and how he invites you to know him and to trust him to adore him, and to lean on him. So the goal is a person, but secondly, the goal is a mission. The goal is mission. You read in verse 9, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. The stone that the Lord is speaking of here is a stone that would go on the turban, likely the stone that would be in front of Joshua's head. And there where it says, holy to the Lord, the Lord says, I will myself inscribe that on that stone. But more it says that it has seven eyes, which is symbolic of God's all-seeing spirit. Which means that not only will God inscribe it on you, but he says that this is absolutely how I see you. This is totally how I see you. This is the goal of where you are going, is you, seen in my eyes, righteous and precious in my eyes. That is the goal for you to move towards that. But it moves past that even. You look in verse 9 again, where God promises that in the day when he inscribes that, I will remove the iniquity of this land. Moreover, he says in verse 10, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. When God provides righteousness and gives it freely to his people, it will mean righteousness flowing into the entire land that belongs to God, all of creation. And on that day when righteousness flows into the entire creation, what will be happening, you can see in verse 10, he says that every one of you, Each single one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Coming under someone's vine would be a way of offering protection, would be seeking protection from the sun, shade from the sun. And when you would come under someone's fig tree, it would be coming into, let's say, their house for a feast, coming to them for provision, The Lord is saying, when I inscribe righteousness on your forehead, there will be righteousness flowing into the entire earth. And on that day, you will become a bearer of the hope of righteousness. That you will be offering the provision and protection of my righteousness to the entire world. How do we get there? How do we become these bearers of righteousness? Uh, There's a book by a guy named Patrick Rothfuss, and it's called The Name of the Wind. Here in this book, 
two characters are talking about the difference between seeming and becoming. And one of them is describing the situation of where you become something the more that you know that you are seen that way. And the friend says, oh, okay, I think I get it. You're saying like if you put prince's clothes on a beggar, eventually he'll live up to the expectations. And this is what the other character says. That's only the smallest piece of it. The truth is deeper than that. It's, he floundered for a moment, it's like everyone tells a story about themselves inside their own head. Always, all the time. That story makes you what you are. We build ourselves out of that story. Frowning, the other character opened his mouth, but he held up a hand to stop him. No, listen, I've got it now. You meet a girl, shy, unassuming. If you tell her she's beautiful, she won't believe you. She knows that beauty belies in your beholding and what you, the way you see her. And sometimes that's enough. His eyes brighten, but there's a better way. You show her she is beautiful. You make mirrors of your eyes. It's very hard. It's very difficult. But when she truly believes you, suddenly the story she tells herself in her own head changes. She transformed. She is transformed. She isn't seen as beautiful. She is beautiful seen. God is calling us into mission, and that mission is living as you are seen. God says, you are righteous. You have the righteousness of my son. And he says, go out and be bearers of that hope of righteousness into the world. That God operates through you, every single one of you, to bring hope to this world of righteousness. The righteousness that is sealed on your forehead, given by Christ, saying, you are my beloved, you are precious in my sight. And what happens? You move away from pride, because if you're prideful, this is saying here we need to invite others into our lives. If you're prideful, no one wants to come under your vine. If you're prideful, no one wants to come to your fig party. That's not what anyone wants. But the more you see that the righteousness you have is given as a free gift and is really yours, you become an inviter into the hope of righteousness. And it moves you away from shame because the more you see you are truly righteous in God's sight, you have no fear. You can move towards other people. So for many of you, the application is very clear. Be inviting people into your home more because you are the bearer of the hope of righteousness. But for the others of you, maybe you just need to start with this question. Am I the kind of person that hurting and lost people move toward? that they feel invited by? Are you the kind of person that people will seek out for provision and for protection because you know the righteousness you have been given so deeply? Are you, at this point, so full of shame that you don't engage with people in this congregation or people in your community because you feel like you have nothing to offer? What do we have to offer? In Luke 15, Jesus tells this parable of the prodigal son, a son who goes away from his father, his loving father, and disobeys him and seeks to get away from him and just squanders all of his wealth. And when the son comes home, he sees his father, and what he expects is rejection for the unrighteousness that he has shown towards his father. What does the father do? 
He runs towards his son, breaks off the son's plan of making, making a, an excuse or trying to get back in his good graces. And he says, bring the best robe, bring new shoes, and bring the family ring and put them on him. Cover him with them because my son is home and he is precious in my eyes. And then what happens? A feast. You are called to move into the world with the righteousness God has given to you, not for yourself. You are not the end of righteousness, but for feasting, a feast of hope that you are invited into. And the more that you enter into that feast of hope, the more you will invite others into it. It is the hope not only for you, but for the world. So friends, Let's move towards Christ, who is the gift of righteousness, who has given his life for us to make us righteous, to bring us into this feast. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the gift of righteousness you've given to us. And I pray that we uh, would see that it is freely given, but is truly ours. And that would make us bearers of the hope of righteousness to this world. In your name, amen.